Part Two of The Highest Treason. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Highest Treason by Randall Garrett. Part Two The Decision. Colonel Sebastian McMain didn't feel that morning as though this day were different from any other. The sun, faintly veiled by a few wisps of cloud, shone as it always had. The guards at the doors of the Space Force Administration Building saluted him as usual. His brother officers nodded politely, as they always did. His aide greeted him with the usual, "'Good morning, sir.' The duty list lay on his desk as it had every morning for years. Sebastian McMain felt tense and a little irritated with himself, but he felt nothing that could be called a premonition. When he read the first item on the duty list, his irritation became a little stronger. Interrogate Carothai General. The interrogation duty had swung round to him again. He didn't want to talk to General Tallis. There was something about the alien that bothered him, and he couldn't place exactly what it was. Earth had been lucky to capture the alien officer. In a space war, there's usually very little left to capture after a battle, especially if your side lost the battle. On the other hand, the Karothai general wasn't so lucky. The food that had been captured with him would run out in less than six months, and it was doubtful that he would survive on Earth food. It was equally doubtful that any more Karothai food would be captured. For two years, Earth had been fighting the Karothai, and for two years, Earth had been winning a few minor skirmishes and losing the major battles. The Karothai hadn't hit any of the major colonies yet, but they had swallowed up outpost after outpost, and Earth's space fleet was losing ships faster than her factories could turn them out. The hell of it was that nobody on Earth seemed to be very much concerned about it at all. McMain wondered why he let it concern him. If no one else was worried, why did he let it bother him? He pushed the thought from his mind and picked up the questionnaire form that had been made out for that morning's session with the Karothai general. Might as well get it over with. He glanced down the list of further duties for the day. It looked as though the routine interrogation of the Karothai general was likely to provide most of the interest in the day's work at that. He took the drop chute down to the basement of the building to the small prison section where the alien officer was being held. The guard saluted nonchalantly as he went in. The routine questioning sessions were nothing new to them. McMain turned the lock on the prisoner's cell door and went in. Then he came to attention and saluted the Carothai general. He was probably the only officer in the place who did that, he knew. The others treated the alien general as though he were a criminal. Worse, they treated him as though he were a petty thief or a common pickpocket. Criminal, yes, but of a definitely inferior type. General Tallis, as always, stood and returned the salute. Katmonik, Colonel McMain, he said. The Karothai language lacked many of the voiced consonants of English and Russian, and as a result, Tallis's use of B, D, G, J, V, and Z made them come out as P, T, K, C, H, F, and S. The English R, as it is pronounced in run or rat, eluded him entirely, and he pronounced it only when he could give it the guttural pronunciation of the German R. The terminal NG always came out as NK. 
The nasal M and N were a little more drawn out than in English, but they were easily understandable. "'Good morning, General Tallis,' McMain said. "'Sit down. How do you feel this morning?' The general sat again on the hard bunk that, aside from the single chair, was the only furniture in the small cell. "'As well as could be expected. I get very little exercise. I—' "'How is it set? I become soft?' Soft is correct. Correct. You've learned our language very well for so short a time. The general shrugged off the compliment. When it is a matter of loan and order to survive, one learns. You think then that your survival has depended on your learning our language? The general's orange face contrived a wry smile. Obviously. Your people will not learn Korotic. If I can't answer questions, I am of no use. As long as I am of use, I will live. Not? McMain decided he might as well spring his bomb on the Carothai officer now as later. I am not so certain but that you might have stretched out your time longer if you had forced us to learn Carothic, General, he said, in Carothic. He knew his Karothic was bad, since it had been learned from the Karothai spacemen who had been captured with the general, and the man had been badly wounded and had survived only two weeks. But that little bit of basic instruction, plus the work he had done on the books and tapes from the ruined Karothai ship, had helped him. Ah? The general blinked in surprise. Then he smiled. Your accent, he said in Karothic, is atrocious, but certainly no worse than mine when I speak your Inklitch. I suppose you intend to question me in Karothic now, eh? In the hope that I may reveal more in my own tongue. Possibly you may, McMain said with a grin, but I learned it for my own information. For your own what? Oh, I see. Interesting. I know no others of your race who would do such a thing. Anything which is difficult is beneath them. Not so, General. I am not unique. There are many of us who don't think that way. The General shrugged. I do not deny it. I merely say that I have met none. Certainly they do not tend to go into military service. Possibly that is because you are not a race of fighters. It takes a fighter to tackle the difficult just because it is difficult. McMain gave him a short, hard laugh. Don't you think getting information out of you is difficult? And yet we tackle that. Not the same thing at all. Routine. You have used no pressure, no threats, no promises, no torture, no stress. McMain wasn't quite sure of his translation of the last two negative phrases. You mean the application of physical pain? That's barbaric. I won't pursue the subject, the general said with sudden irony. I can understand that, but you can rest assured that we would never do such a thing. It isn't civilized. Our civil police do use certain drugs to obtain information, but we have so little knowledge of Carothai body chemistry that we hesitate to use drugs on you. The application of stress, you say, is not civilized. Not, perhaps, according to your definition of, he used the English word, syphilized. No, not syphilized. But it works. Again, he smiled. I said that I have become soft since I have been here, 
but I fear that your civilization is even softer. A man can lie even if his arms are pulled off or his feet crushed, McMaine said stiffly. The Kurothai looked startled. When he spoke again, it was in English. I will say no more. If you have questions to ask, go ahead. I will not take up time with further talking. A little angry with himself and with the general, McMain spent the rest of the hour asking routine questions and getting nowhere, filling up the tape in his mini-quarter with the same old answers that others had gotten. He left, giving the general a brisk salute and turning before the general had time to return it. Back in his office, he filed the tape dutifully and started on item two of the duty list. Strategy Analysis of Battle Reports Strategy analysis always irritated and upset him. He knew that if he'd just go about it in the approved way, there would be no irritation, only boredom. But he was constitutionally incapable of working that way. In spite of himself, he always played a little game with himself and with the general strategy computer. The only battle of significance in the past week had been the defense of an Earth outpost called Bennington Four. Theoretically, McMaine was supposed to check over the entire report, find out where the losing side had erred, and feed correctional information into the computer. But he couldn't resist stopping after he had read the first section. Information known to Earth Commander at moment of initial contact. Then he would stop and consider how he personally would have handled the situation if he had been the Earth Commander. So many ships in such and such places. Enemy fleet approaching at such and such velocities. Battle array of enemy thus and so. Now what? McMain thought over the information on the defense of Bennington Four and devised a battle plan. There was a weak point in the enemy's attack, but it was rather obvious. McMain searched until he found another weak point, much less obvious than the first. He knew it would be there. It was. Then he proceeded to ignore both weak points and concentrate on what he would do if he were the enemy commander. The weak points were traps. The computer could see them and avoid them, which was just exactly what was wrong with the computer's logic. In avoiding the traps, it also avoided the best way to hit the enemy. A weak point is weak, no matter how well it may be booby-trapped. In baiting a rat trap, you have to use real cheese because an imitation won't work. Of course, McMain thought to himself, you can always poison the cheese, but let's not carry the analogy too far. All right, then. How to hit the traps. It took him half an hour to devise a completely wacky and unorthodox way of hitting the holes in the enemy advance. He checked the time carefully because there's no point in devising a strategy if the battle is too far gone to use it by the time you figured it out. Then he went ahead and read the rest of the report. Earth had lost the outpost. And worse, McMain's strategy would have won the battle if it had been used. He fed it through his small office computer to make sure. The odds were good. And that was the thing that made McMain hate strategy analysis. Too often he won. Too often Earth lost. A computer was fine for working out the logical outcome of a battle if it was given the proper strategy, but it couldn't devise anything new. Colonel McMain had tried to get himself transferred to space duty, 
but without success. The commanding staff didn't want him out there. The trouble was that they didn't believe McMain actually devised his strategy before he read the complete report. How could anyone outthink a computer? He'd offered to prove it. Give me a problem, he'd told his immediate superior, General Matsukuo. Give me the initial contact information of a battle I haven't seen before, and I'll show you. And Matsukuo had said testily, Colonel, I will not permit a member of my staff to make a fool of himself in front of the commanding staff. Setting yourself up as someone superior to the strategy board is the most antisocial type of egocentrism imaginable. You were given the same education at the academy as every other officer. What makes you think you are better than they? As time goes on, your automatic promotions will put you in a position to vote on such matters, provided you don't prejudice the promotion board against you by antisocial behavior. I hold you in the highest regard, Colonel, and I will say nothing to the promotion board about this, but if you persist, I will have to do my duty. Now I don't want to hear any more about it. Is that clear? It was. All McMain had to do was wait, and he'd automatically be promoted to the commanding staff, where he would have an equal vote with the others of his rank. One unit vote to begin with, and an additional unit for every year thereafter. It's a great system for running a peacetime social club, maybe, McMain thought but it's no way to run a fighting force. Maybe the Carothide General was right. Maybe Homo sapiens just wasn't a race of fighters. They had been once. Mankind had fought its way to domination of Earth by battling every other form of life on the planet, from the smallest virus to the biggest carnivore. The fight against disease was still going on, as a matter of fact, and man was still fighting the elemental fury of Earth's climate. But man no longer fought with man. Was that a bad thing? The discovery of atomic energy two centuries before had literally made war impossible if the race was to survive. Small struggles bred bigger struggles, or so the reasoning went. Therefore, the society had unconsciously sought to eliminate the reasons for struggle. What bred the hatreds and jealousies among men? What caused one group to fight another? Society had decided that intolerance and hatred were caused by inequality. The jealousy of the inferior toward his superior. The scorn of the superior toward his inferior. The have-not envies the have, and the have looks down upon the have-not. Then, let us eliminate the have-not. Let us make sure that everyone is a have raise the standard of living make sure that every human being has the necessities of life food clothing shelter proper medical care and proper education more give them the luxuries too let no man be without anything that is poorer in quality or less in quantity than the possessions of any other there was no longer any middle class simply because there were no other classes for it to be in the middle of the poor you will have always with you, Jesus of Nazareth had said. But in a material sense, that was no longer true. The poor were gone, and so were the rich. But the poor in mind and the poor in spirit were still there, in ever-increasing numbers. 
material wealth could be evenly distributed, but it could not remain that way unless society made sure that the man who was more clever than the rest could not increase his wealth at the expense of his less fortunate brethren. Make it a social stigma to show more ability than the average. Be kind to your fellow man. Don't show him up as a stupid clod, no matter how cloddish he may be. All men are created equal, and let's make sure they stay that way. There could be no such thing as a classless society, of course. That was easily seen. No human being could do everything, learn everything, be everything. There had to be doctors and lawyers and policemen and bartenders and soldiers and machinists and laborers and actors and writers and criminals and bums. But let's make sure that the differentiation between classes is horizontal, not vertical. As long as a person does his job the best he can, he's as good as anybody else. A doctor is as good as a lawyer, isn't he? Then a garbage collector is just as good as a nuclear physicist, and an astronomer is no better than a street sweeper. And what of the loafer, the bum, the man who's too lazy or weak-willed to put out any more effort than is absolutely necessary to stay alive? Well, my goodness, the poor chap can't help it, can he? It isn't his fault, is it? He has to be helped. There is always something he is both capable of doing and willing to do. Does he like to sit around all day and do nothing but watch television? Then give him a sheet of paper with all the programs on it, and two little boxes marked yes and no, and he can put an X in one or the other to indicate whether he likes the program or not. Useful? Certainly. All these sheets can be tallied up in order to find out what sort of program the public likes to see. After all, his vote is just as good as anyone else's, isn't it? and a program analyst is just as good, just as important, and just as well cared for as anyone else. And what about the criminal? Well, what is a criminal? A person who thinks he's superior to others. A thief steals because he thinks he has more right to something than its real owner. A man kills because he has an idea that he has a better right to live than someone else. In short, a man breaks the law because he feels superior, because he thinks he can outsmart society and the law, or, simply, because he thinks he can outsmart the policeman on the beat. Obviously, that sort of antisocial behavior can't be allowed. The poor fellow who thinks he's better than anyone else has to be segregated from normal society and treated for his aberrations, but not punished. Heavens, no! His erratic behavior isn't his fault, is it? It was axiomatic that there had to be some sort of vertical structure to society, naturally. A child can't do the work of an adult, and a beginner can't be as good as an old hand. Aside from the fact that it was actually impossible to force everyone into a common mold, it was recognized that there had to be some incentive for staying with a job. What to do? The labor unions had solved that problem two hundred years before. Promotion by seniority. Stick with a job long enough, and you'll automatically rise to the top. That way, everyone had as good a chance as everyone else. Promotion tables for individual jobs were worked out on the basis of longevity tables, so that by the time a man reached the automatic retirement age, he was automatically at the highest position he could hold. No fuss, no bother, no trouble. Just keep your nose clean and live as long as possible. 
It eliminated struggle. It eliminated the petty jockeying for position that undermined efficiency in an organization. Everybody deserves an equal chance in life, so make sure everybody gets it. Colonel Sebastian McMain had been born and reared in that society. He could see many of its faults, but he didn't have the orientation to see all of them. As he'd grown older, he'd seen that, regardless of the position a man held according to seniority, a smart man could exercise more power than those above him, if he did it carefully. A man is a slave if he is held rigidly in a pattern and not permitted to step out of that pattern. In ancient times, a slave was born at the bottom of the social ladder and he remained there all his life. Only rarely did a slave of exceptional merit manage to rise above his assigned position. But a man who is forced to remain on the bottom step of a stationary stairway is no more a slave than a man who is forced to remain on a given step of an escalator, and no less so. Slavery, however, has two advantages one for the individual, and one which, in the long run, can be good for the race. For the individual, it offers security, and that is the goal which by far the greater majority of mankind seeks. The second advantage is more difficult to see. It operates only in favor of the exceptional individual. There are always individuals who aspire to greater heights than the one they occupy at any given moment, but in a slave society they are slapped back into place if they act hastily. Just as the one-eyed man in the kingdom of the blind can be king if he taps the ground with a cane, so the gifted individual can gain his ends in a slave society, provided he thinks out the consequences of any act in advance. The law of gravity is a universal edict which enslaves, in a sense, every particle of matter in the cosmos. The man who attempts to defy the injustice of that law by ignoring the consequences of its enforcement will find himself punished rather severely. It may be unjust that a bird can fly under its own muscle power, but a man who tries to correct that injustice by leaping out of a skyscraper window and flapping his arms vigorously will find that overt defiance of the law of gravity brings very serious penalties indeed. The wise man seeks the loopholes in the law, and loopholes are caused by other laws which counteract, not defy, the given law. A balloon full of hydrogen falls up in obedience to the law of gravity. A contradiction? A paradox? No. It is the law of gravity which causes the density and pressure of a planet's atmosphere to decrease with altitude, and that decrease in pressure forces the balloon upwards until the balance point between atmospheric density and the internal density of the balloon is reached. The illustration may seem obvious and elementary to the modern man, but it seems so only because he understands, at least to some extent, the laws involved. It was not obvious to even the most learned man of, say, the 13th century. Slavery, too, has its laws, and it is as dangerous to defy the laws of a society as it is to defy those of nature, and the only way to escape the punishment resulting from those laws is to find the loopholes. 
one of the most basic laws of any society is so basic that it is never ever written down and that law like all basic laws is so simple in expression and so obvious in application that any man above the moron level has an intuitive grasp of it it is the first law one learns as a child thou shalt not suffer thyself to be caught the unthinking man believes that this basic law can be applied by breaking the laws of his society in secret what he fails to see is that such law-breaking requires such a fantastic network of lies, subterfuges, evasions, and chicanery that the structure itself eventually breaks down and his guilt is obvious to all. The very steps he has taken to keep from getting caught eventually become signposts that point unerringly at the law-breaker himself. Like the loopholes in the law of gravity, the loopholes in the laws of society cannot entail a defiance of the law. Only compliance with those laws will be ultimately successful. The wise man works within the framework of the law, not only the written but the unwritten law of his society. In a slave society, any slave who openly rebels will find that he gets squashed pretty quickly but many a slave-owner has danced willingly to the tune of a slave who was wiser and cleverer than he, without ever knowing that the tune played was not his own. And that is the second advantage of slavery. It teaches the exceptional individual to think. When a wise, intelligent individual openly and violently breaks the laws of his society, there are two things which are almost certain. One, he knows that there is no other way to do the thing he feels must be done, and, two, he knows that he will pay the penalty for his crime in one way or another. Sebastian McMain knew the operations of those laws. As a member of a self-enslaved society, he knew that to betray any sign of intelligence was dangerous. A slight slip could bring the scorn of the slaves around him, a major offense could mean death. The war with Caroth had thrown him slightly off balance, but after his one experience with General Matsukuo, he had quickly regained his equilibrium. At the end of his workday, McMain closed his desk and left his office precisely on time as usual. Working overtime, except in the gravest emergencies, was looked upon as anti-socialism. The offender was suspected of having ambition obviously a bad thing. It was during his meal at the officer's mess that Colonel Sebastian McMain heard the statement that triggered the decision in his mind. There were three other officers seated with McMain around one of the four-place tables in the big room. McMain only paid enough attention to the table conversation to be able to make the appropriate noises at the proper times. He had long since learned to do his thinking under cover of general banalities. Colonel Van Dusen was a man who would never have made private first class in an army that operated on a strict merit system. His thinking was muddy and his conversation betrayed it. All he felt comfortable in talking about was just exactly what he had been taught. Slogans, banalities, and bromides. He knew his catechism and he knew it was safe. What I mean is, we got nothing to worry about. We all stick together and we can do anything. As long as we don't rock the boat, we'll come through okay. Sure, said Major Brock, looking up from his plate in blank-faced surprise. 
I mean, who says different? Got on my research team, said Van Dusen, plying his fork industriously. A wise guy, second Louis, one of them. Oh, said the Major knowingly. One of them. He went back to his meal. What'd he say, McMain asked, just to keep his oar in. Uh, nothing serious, I guess, said Van Dusen around a mouthful of steak. Said we were all clogged up with paperwork, making reports on tests, things like that. Said, why don't we figure out something to pop those carrot skins out of the sky? So I said to him, look, lieutenant, I said, you got your job to do, I got mine. If the paperwork's piling up, I said, it's because somebody isn't pulling his share. And it better not be you, I said. He chuckled and speared another cube of steak with his fork. That settled him down. He's all right, though. Young yet, you know. Soon's he gets the hang of how the Space Force operates, he'll be okay. Since Van Dusen was the senior officer at the table, the others listened respectfully as he talked, only inserting a word now and then to show that they were listening. McMain was thinking deeply about something else entirely, but Van Dusen's influence intruded a little. McMain was wondering what it was that bothered him about General Tallis, the Karothai prisoner. The alien was pleasant enough in spite of his position. He seemed to accept his imprisonment as one of the fortunes of war. He didn't threaten or bluster, although he tended to maintain an air of superiority that would have been unbearable in an earthman. Was that the reason for his uneasiness in the general's presence? No. McMain could accept the reason for that attitude. The general's background was different from that of an earthman, and therefore he could not be judged by terrestrial standards. Besides, McMain could acknowledge to himself that Tallis was superior to the norm, not only to the norm of Keroth, but that of Earth. McMain wasn't sure he could have acknowledged superiority in another Earthman, in spite of the fact that he knew there must be men who were his superiors in one way or another. Because of his social background, he knew that he would probably form an intense and instant dislike for any Earthman who talked the way Talus did, but he found that he actually liked the alien officer. It came as a slight shock when the realization hit McMain that his liking for the general was exactly why he was uncomfortable around him. Damn it, a man isn't supposed to like his enemy, and most especially when that enemy does and says things that one would despise in a friend. Come to think of it, though, did he, McMain, actually have any friends? He looked around him, suddenly clearly conscious of all the other men in the room. He searched through his memory, thinking of all his acquaintances and relatives. It was an even greater shock to realize that he would not be more than faintly touched emotionally if any or all of them were to die at that instant. Even his parents, both of whom were now dead, were only dim figures in his memory. He had mourned them when an aircraft accident had taken both of them when he was only eleven, but he found himself wondering if it had been the loss of loved ones that had caused his emotional upset, or simply the abrupt vanishing of a kind of security he had taken for granted. And yet he felt that the death of General Poland Tallis would leave an empty place in his life. 
Colonel Van Dusen was still holding forth. So I told him, I said, Look, Lieutenant, I said, don't rock the boat. You're a kid yet, you know, I said. You got equal rights with everybody else, I said, but if you rock the boat, you aren't going to get along so well. You just behave yourself, I said, and pull your share of the load and do your job right and keep your nose clean, and you'll come out all right. Time I get to be on the general staff, I told him, why, you'll be taking over my job, maybe. That's the way it works, I said. He's a good kid. I mean, he's a fresh young punk, that's all. He'll learn okay. He'll climb right up once he's got the right attitude. Why, when I was... But McMain was no longer listening. It was astonishing to realize that what Van Dusen had said was perfectly true. A blockhead like Van Dusen would simply be lifted to a position of higher authority, only to be replaced by another blockhead. There would be no essential change in the status quo. The Kurothai were winning steadily, and the people of Earth and her colonies were making no changes whatever in their way of living. The majority of people were too blind to be able to see what was happening, and the rest were afraid to admit the danger even to themselves. It required no great understanding of strategy to see what the inevitable outcome must be. At some point in the last few centuries, human civilization had taken the wrong path, a path that led only to oblivion. It was at that moment that Colonel Sebastian McMain made his decision. End of Part 2